Okay, so our scripture reading for today comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Fear God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, but let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's look into Ecclesiastes. We're actually going to cover chapter 4 and then go through those first seven verses in chapter 5. And um, we know that Ecclesiastes, uh, Kohelet, is, is uh, what we've been, the, the term we've been using, that he's continually pointing out how people are searching, looking for the meaning of life, and yet this phrase, under the sun, as long as we're under the sun, which is a code word for being far from God or absent from God or that God is far away, that we're actually not going to be able to find that. So he takes this philosophical approach um, yet a very practical approach in kind of helping us see how life will be uh, if we are far from God and how that road kind of leads to nowhere. Now, he wrote this uh, 3,000 years ago, and so here we are 3,000 years later with just the, our evolution that's been happening, and we've been evolving at, as people, and yet we still find ourselves in a similar place, I think, in terms of dissatisfaction uh, discontentment, restlessness, uh, loneliness. We have all of these things that are still in existence today, even though we've had 3,000 years since the time he wrote this to kind of process and get out of those things. So if we just become dust at the end of our life, then what is the real purpose? What is the real meaning to, to, that we bring into this world? What, what's the purpose of all of this? What, what hope is there if all there is at the end of life is death and then nothing more than that. And so let's jump into verse 1 here. Again, I saw all the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And so this phrase, no one to comfort them, is, is repeated. It's the, the writer's way of emphasizing this. Verse 2, and, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deed that are done under the sun. So it seems here that Koheleth is saying it, it's, it's better to be dead or never have experienced life under the sun, life outside of God, that in this world you see that the oppressors have power and they abuse it. And we see this today with the tribalism and the nationalism that has existed ever since people have walked this earth and it still exists today. 
that racism is very, very much alive today and there's all sorts of discrimination that's happening all over the world and Ecclesiastes is writing that, you know what? The dead probably have it better than those who are alive, who are being oppressed, who are being discriminated against. That the unborn have it better than those who are alive because it's pretty bad for some people. It's actually pretty bad for 65 million people today. You know, Oakland is one of the resettlement cities for refugees in Northern California. And uh, the International Rescue Committee, whom some of the people at this church have interned for or worked for, um, have had this study done. And the study is that they found that there are over 65 million people that have been displaced from their homelands because of conflict and crisis. And that number, over 65 million, is more than any other time in history since World War II. That it had to take a world war to displace as many people that we have today. And so, do we even see them? Do we know that they're even here, that they're right in our backyard attempting to restart their lives? And it's something actually that we can all practically help in because every Saturday we are facilitating ESL classes for our refugee friends. We are facilitating citizenship classes for our refugee friends. We are providing a space for 1951 to equip them for vocational training for, for the coffee industry that there are places that we can plug in and we're still in the process of figuring out how we can do more in the process of trying and learning more to, to serve them. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Envy. I mean, how much of what we do is out of envy? And if that is truly the case, that it is out of envy, then how meaningless is that? So you come out ahead of somebody, but you must realize that it's just a matter of time until that other person is taking over your spot. And so goes this cycle that proves that envy or doing something out of envy is ultimately pointless because... It may be the motivation that helps you get ahead for a little while, but there's always someone who's smarter, better, faster, more educated, more qualified, who's gaining steam on you to take over wherever you're at while you're losing steam because time always wins. And so you always weaken. You always atrophy. You always age. You always get slower. So it's only a matter of time. And so we have this extreme of one who's working really hard and really driven and that envy has gotten them in this place and so they get ahead, but then so what? And then we're given this opposite extreme where the individual doesn't do anything at all. Verse 5, the, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So this is kind of talking about the individual that's not doing anything, that's just kind of like watching, observing, whatever, but just kind of folding hands and just watching away wasting away, being eaten away. And then comes this insightful thought in verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. That it's better to have these modest earnings and to have a restful mind than to have a ton of money and all the worries that go with that. 
And this is not about being rich or being poor. This is about what's behind what you have, that motivation, that heart, that attitude, that posture that you have behind those things. And so really it's about contentment. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to the Philippian church about contentment. And the really interesting thing about this is where Paul was when he wrote this. Paul was locked up in a Roman jail in Rome. He was there for two years. And he wrote this letter while in jail. So he's writing to the Philippian church about contentment while he's locked up for two years. Starting in verse 11, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, be, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And we know that contentment is so challenging. To be content where we're at, to be content with what we have, to be content with the people we're around. And back to Ecclesiastes. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. I saw vanity outside of God, far from God. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So back in verse 1, there was no comforter. And here in verse 8, we read that one person who has no other. So we see this theme of being alone, of, of loneliness, which was, again, something he wrote 3,000 years ago. And it doesn't seem that all that much has changed 3,000 years later because I still meet people and talk to people who are sharing with me about how lonely they feel. And yet we have so much. Our world has so much. Technology has improved so much. Our systems are a little bit better for different things. And, and it seems that after thousands of years, we should have evolved into better people. But yet we still find so much dissatisfaction. We still find so much loneliness and restlessness and so much discontentment. Why is this? People who still feel separated and alienated from people, even though there are so many people around them. And that you feel like you're a stranger where people even know your name, but you still feel like you're not known. And maybe this is just a glimpse of what life is like under the sun. What life is like outside of God, life without God, that this is just pointing to, you're a stranger here on this earth. That there is no end in sight in front of you. That you have what you want, but then you're still not satisfied and you question, why in the world am I doing this? And who am I even doing this for? Because if I'm doing it for somebody, then why am I so lonely? Why am I so discontent? And then he gives us this glimmer of good news in the midst of all this depressing stuff because Ecclesiastes is kind of depressing. But here's some good news. Verse 9. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So this is just common sense. It's, it's how to address companionship or, or loneliness. And living in community, that community is important. So now it's obvious that people 
fail us. That, that companionship you were counting on, that friendship you were counting on, that oftentimes the people fail us. They, they leave. They do something that betrays us. They do all these sorts of stuff that causes that division. And even if they were perfect and they did leave, didn't leave us and they were there, eventually they physically do because there's something called death that has always won. And so there is this eventual separation, but then, then what? Let's look to Paul again, and he wrote this to the Ephesian church. He wrote this in that same two-year period um, that he was in jail for those two years. Paul wrote four letters during that time, and a very ambitious guy. So here, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Remember that you were at times separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You and Jesus are much better than just you alone. You know that companionship, that you don't have to remain alone, that, that Jesus brought you near, that you were once far off, but we, we have been brought near by Jesus who offers us friendship and companionship. And it's not till death do you part because it's for everlasting. It's forever. Back to Ecclesiastes, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. What is this saying? You and I don't remain on top forever. It, it just comes and go, be, goes because there's always someone that's just a little bit behind you ready to take your place and that every single one of us is replaceable and once you've been replaced, your, your replacement will have a replacement and so goes the cycle in that none of us remains on the top. And so back to is life meaningful or is it meaningless and how do we find hope and meaning in today's world? Ecclesiastes is pretty clear in that finding that meaning doesn't happen under the sun. It doesn't happen outside of God. It doesn't happen far away from God. And so he's pointing to, yeah, you find it in, in God, but then how? Like, well, how? So we look, at to chap look into chapter 5, and maybe worship has something to do with that. Chapter 5, verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near is to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Now, when Koheleth is writing House of God for him, in his mind, he has in his mind the, the temple of Sol that Solomon built. This beautiful, majestic, grand structure, a very impressive building. And so people would enter this very impressive, ornate, imposing temple, and they would just be taken back by this, their surroundings, the smells of sacrifices, and the sights of this gold and big buildings and structures bigger than anything that they've seen. 
And so all these senses are being touched by all of this stuff and everything around them is just imposing and majestic and they're looking up. They're looking up at everything. And so they found themselves in a space and a time where they would actually probably be more in tune to the presence of God because they believed that the presence of God was there. And so as they entered this, this was a very tangible sense. And yet, Koheleth is writing that that's what happened 3,000 years ago, but now we don't have a temple, and so things have changed quite a bit in terms of places of worship. So we do have evidence of these really, really grand places, structures of worship and, and of times past. And so one of these places you can go to is in Istanbul, in Turkey, and you can go into the Hagia Sophia. And as you enter there, it's just, it's an incredible structure. And you get this sense of awe as you walk in there, and you can't believe that people built that without our modern machinery. Like, this is without cranes? How in the world do they do this? This is without like caterpillar and bulldozers and all this stuff. Like, how in the world are they doing these things? And they really pull you in and they give you this sense of awe. And yet, you go there and it is really hard to have this kind of me orientation when you're there. Because it's just so cavernous, it's so big, and you're there with people that it's really hard to go in there and say like, oh, this is, this is about me worship, like me worshiping God. It's more about we. And it's so different than, say, churches of today, because you can come in here and there's not necessarily that collective worship feeling that you can come in and find a place in a pew and, and be off to the side and it's just between you and God. And so, yes, there's some importance in terms of how architecture lends to worship but we can never neglect the importance of togetherness and, and this collective worship together, even if you come into a building like this. Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, chapter 2, starting in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there was a time where there was this greater emphasis on architecture, like the temple, but it's not like that anymore. And yet architecture can be so meaningful, but the meaning is not dependent on the architecture. The homes that we all live in, they are influenced by the decor, they are influenced by the architecture, they are influenced by furnishings, but that's not what makes them home to us. What makes them home to us are the people in that home, right? And so that, that this building that we're in is not because of wooden pews and stained glass, but it's because you guys are here, that we are together, that us being together, worshiping together, makes this a worshipful place. The significance of this building is not the wood and the plaster and whatever else. It's, it's because we're together here in the presence of God, and that nothing would draw us here if people weren't here. It's not like the building would draw you here, unless you were a Julia Morgan fan, because we do have those tour groups that come through and they 
asked to come in the building and all this stuff. And I love making up stories and saying it's haunted and all that kind of stuff. I love saying that to them. But if it weren't for the people here, it's, it's better to be at the taco truck, right? Like, at least they have, at least they have tacos. Like, we can, we can eat. Like, it's... But this is our spiritual family. And it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And so for Ecclesiastes, he's thinking in the context of temple. But for us, it's in the context of each other, our spiritual family, of being here with each other. So what does this mean? It's pointing to our posture. It's pointing to our attitude, our heart as we are together. And so what does this look like practically? Well, how, how are we going to provide for a place to be together? How are we going to do that? And so oftentimes food's involved because that helps us be together. And then there are some really practical things that you guys are really generous at and already doing in terms of like finances. Finances are involved to provide this space and that our presence is needed, that we need to be together and that we don't neglect each other. So we have finances and time and, and they all come into play into being together and that participation of the things that are happening here in worship and giving in service and doing that all as a family as we offer our prayers and praise, not neglecting each other. And so if our posture is off then, and, and our perspective is off, then how, how are we going to view our relationship to the house of God, to each other? And so many things will look and feel different if the perspective's off. So is our alignment with God, are we aligned together with God as a church? Some questions to ask yourself, you know, is, is God here? And are God's people here? Because if God's not here and God's people are not here, don't stay. Go to the taco truck where God is there. And when you enter into this place of worship, do you intend on coming here to worship God? Or what are you thinking as you enter into the house of God, into this togetherness? What's on your mind? What's, what are you preoccupied on? Are your thoughts on God or are they on you or something else? Is that alignment there? Because the scripture says to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And again, that temple picture, right? You're entering in all this grandeur and you smell that sacrifice and, 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 you're, and you're getting in your head that you're entering into a place of worship. Well, you know what? It's better to draw near to listen than to offer these sacrifices, than to give whatever you're giving. That a significant portion of guarding our steps is in the preparation Right? It's, it's in before you enter into this house of togetherness, of us being together. It's in the listening. And more than it is what we do when we get here, it's, it's in the preparation. It's in the listening. We, we need to prepare to be together if we're going to be good at being together. So first, guard our steps. And then verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And that mouth of ours can sometimes be so, so damaging. 
and hurtful. There are a lot of opinionated people here. I'll leave it at that. I mean, it's not just our church, but the Bay Area is this way, but our, our, our church is a very opinionated church, and we hear a lot of different perspectives on the whole spectrum about what people believe is right and what people believe is good, and, and they're so ready to share their thoughts. And then stepping back from it a bit and just kind of evaluating what this side says and this side says and everyone in between, and you're just thinking like, man, why oftentimes are we so self-centered and so self-absorbed and self-righteous? And we need to keep in mind that who God is and who we are in all of this, and maybe with that proper perspective, we wouldn't say the things that we've said or plan to say. I've, I've encountered a lot of people who talk a really, really big spiritual game, um, myself included. And we talk this big spiritual thing. But there are things I probably wouldn't have said if I just had the proper perspective that God is God and I'm not. That I wouldn't come across the way that I came across. That I wouldn't say the things that I've said that... There are prayers that people are praying. There are songs that people are singing that have lost their meaning and they've lost their significance because we've been rash with our mouth. That we haven't been busy listening. And if only we've been better prepared together. If only we had the proper perspective that God is God and I am not. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Have you ever encountered people who just simply talk too much? And many of you are thinking now, like, yeah, I'm looking at him. Like, he's talking too much. Just talk too much. But, but you get the theme here in, in chapter 5, right? You look at verse 2. Let your words be few. Verse 3, a fool's voice with many words. Verse 7, words grow many. So maybe less talking and more like guarding our steps. More listening. Because God sees everything. He sees what's not seen. God hears what isn't heard. He sees past this devotion of looking like we're devoted people before God with our heads bowed and our arms folded and stuff. He sees past that stuff. That's not going to fool him. He hears past the things that are coming out of your mouth in terms of your songs and your prayers. That's not going to fool him at all. He's looked past all those things. He sees directly into your heart into your soul, into your spirit, and he knows your intents, he knows your heart, he knows your thoughts, he knows your motives, which can be a very scary thing if, for some of you, but he knows it, you're not fooling him. He knows the truth, what's going on in each one of us, and even though you and I can probably fool some people around here by the way we talk and the way we, we, we're kind of exhibiting our, our devotion, it doesn't fool him doesn't fool him. Our worship, our, our presence here does not fool him. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. So we look at this and we, we need to guard our steps. We need to not be rash with our mouths and then we need to keep our vows to God. Maybe some point in your life you've made a promise to God at some point that you were going to live a certain way that you were going to do a certain thing. 
And the thing is, is that you made that vow. God did not make you make that vow, that you voluntarily did that on your own. And so, keep it. Keep your promise to God. You know, that relationship decision, that financial decision, that time decision, that life decision of how you were going to live, of what you were going to do, how you were going to honor God and respect God, whatever it was that you told God that you were going to do, do it. Don't delay in that. And jumping back to verse 6, it's, it, or jumping to verse 6, it says, don't, la- don't, don't, let her, don't later say this, that you know, it was all a mistake. Uh, I, I, I just, I didn't know what I was thinking or I've changed. Or, it says, don't, don't do that. You made a vow to God, keep it. Don't reason your way out of that. You knew what you were doing back then. You voluntarily did it. You made the decision. God didn't make you do it. Stick to your vow. Stick to your promise. So if your vow is, vow to God it wasn't uh, unbiblical, it wasn't unethical. It wasn't illegal because like, maybe you were out of your mind back then and like, yeah, I need to kill that guy. That was, I promised God that I'm going to kill him. No, it's, all, it's unbiblical, it's unethical, it's illegal. No, you were just cuckoo. So don't do that, right? So, but if you made a vow to God and it is biblical, it is ethical, it is legal, keep your promise. Don't delay in fulfilling that and don't, don't talk yourself out of it. Have you ever wondered why things aren't just clicking for you? That maybe that discontentment is never going away or that loneliness, the whatever unsettling thing, it's not working out for you? Maybe it's this, that you need to keep your promise to God. Like how, how are you going to experience peace when you've broken a promise to God? And so do that today. Keep that promise. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Keep it. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. We have all these different thoughts. We all have all these different things, but really, it, it's the fear of God. So we guard our steps. Be, rash, be not rash with your mouth. Keep your vow. Lastly, fearing God. And so in our worship together, in the context of our house of worship, we need to keep these instructions in mind. This, this fear of God is not one we have when you're like coming face to face with a zombie kind of fear, right? It's, it's a different kind of fear. This fear is this reverential awe of God. This ultimate honor and respect of God inspired by our reverence for him and our awe for him. To know God is more gracious than we can ever know to know that God is more just than we can ever know it's a fearful thing it's an awesome thing God isn't expecting worshipers who are perfect just real ones honest ones coming as you are to really see who he is and to be able to see who you are We're cutting this message a little shorter today um, to invest more time into our worship. And so 
we're going to take a time of silence for two minutes and use this time to prepare our hearts, to guard, to let our words be few, to be in the reverence, this reverential awe of God, to be in that space. And so we're going to take a couple minutes to do that. But as we come before God to maybe pray during that time of silence the recalling of maybe some promises that you've made and that you're probably going to have to go back and keep. Probably have to going to go back there and revisit those things. That we're going to prepare our hearts together to worship together. So after I pray, we'll, we'll take the two minutes and then Sherry will lead us in worship and um, you're more than welcome to come up and, and pray um, in the front pews here. Uh, we'll have people stationed up in the front pews and uh, be really honored to pray with you. God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for Ecclesiastes and just kind of showing us from a secular humanist point of view of the meaning of life and that actually that leads to meaninglessness because it's just this vicious cycle that never really changes. And it's proven to be true 3,000 years later that we're dealing with the same things. And so I ask God that as we're going to take a time to seek you and your presence, that your spirit would fill each person here who is willing to welcome you and invite you into their life. You're a gentle person. You don't abuse your power and force us. And so as you are knocking on the door of our hearts and minds to let you in, I pray that there is a hospitable welcome of that from the people here. In Jesus' name, amen.